I believe health is the greatest form of wealth we have, which is why I'm so excited to be partnered with Brother in Arms. Brother in Arms is a wellness brand dedicated to working with veterans, first responders, and anyone on the front line. Through their education, support, and premium CBD products, they help alleviate and restore the lives of those that have been affected by physical and mental trauma. Learn about the life-changing benefits and power of CBD. Join their community today. Hit the link below. I'm Sonia Morton Firth and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today my guest is Roy McComb. Roy is the former Deputy Director of the National Crime Agency and led some of the most complex investigations in the UK, including one of the largest child sex abuse investigations. Now Roy is an international consultant in the world of transnational organised crime and counter-terrorism. This interview will leave you with your eyes wide open as we explore human trafficking and organised crime and how we can each play our part. It's at this point I normally say, welcome to my home. <laughs> welcome, welcome to here, to this room. Um, it's lovely being here and I know you're in London for um, an exhibition. Um, before we get going, because I'm so dying to get into this interview and your journey, can you tell my audience who you are <clears throat> and what you do now? So my name is Roy McComb. I'm a former police officer from Northern Ireland and I was in the National Crime Agency for a number of years and I'm now privileged to be an international consultant around organised crime. And Roy, tell me about your journey because I guess, is it was it one of those moments when you were a little boy you thought, you know what, I want to be a police officer? No, it was much more um, simple. Um, so I grew up in, in, in Belfast in the 1960s and 1970s. By the time I got to 18 years of age, my uh, elder brother had been a police officer for three years. And that was in the mid-1980s and it was bonkers. It was crazy. It was dangerous. There was terrorism. There was ordinary crime. There was organized crime. There was violence. There was rioting. But he really talked about the fun and the pleasure that he was having uh, as a police officer in the Royal Australian Salary. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. And you had a long, a long career in the police force. I did. I've had 30 years and I managed to serve 30 years to the day. And how would you describe your career? Um, there's so little that I would change. There was so much of it that I enjoyed. There was so much of the work that I was fortunate to be involved in that I look back on and think, you know, there's not many people get to experience this type of life. Not many people get to do what I'm doing. And, and just the, almost the personal as well as the professional privilege of being able to, to do what I was doing. And I think I, uh, I as often is said, you, you sort of grow into your job and you become almost better, more informed, more mature, more professional as the days went on. So if I was able to, if my, if my old age didn't stop me doing it all again, I would absolutely do it all again. you do it again. all again? I would do it all again. Now, wasn't there times in your career that you may have looked at things and felt very challenged um, because you were involved with a certain section of the police force? So I, I was, 
like everybody, you join as a uniformed officer. And I was fortunate to get promoted quite early. So I did a lot of patrol work as a sergeant down on the, on the border, which is traditionally a very difficult place to police. So you end up becoming almost a paramilitary type police officer because you're working um, with, the, with the military. So you become not a traditional Bobby on the beat. You end up becoming this sort of quasi-military type officer. And you're walking around fields with almost military-like gear and you're carrying rifles and various other bits and pieces of kit. And you're patrolling the border to stop terrorist activity. And, and there's nothing normal about that. It's not normal police work. But you're trying to do the police work in the middle of that. So you're trying to find the normality in the middle of an abnormal environment. And then probably a number of years into my career, uh, I became a detective. And I stayed as a detective for the most part for the rest of my service until I retired in 2014. Just going back to that, because you, you're a policeman dealing with crime. However, you were in Ireland at the point where terrorism was rife. I'm not saying terrorism hasn't gone away, but mm. certainly in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, what was the link there? And is there still a link today between crime and terrorism? So if you're... Um... Uh, it's almost better to work backwards from 2021 and say, well, look, there's still organized crime now. And a lot of the people involved in organized crime now, I look at and go, but you were also involved in paramilitary organizations. The organized crime, which was always there, has simply become more visible. And what people have done is they've, they've, they've morphed from being a terrorist to becoming an organized criminal. And they've used their skills, as it were, as a terrorist to become a sophisticated organized criminal. Which so is that, more dangerous in your opinion? Well, I, so I think the public have a, a zero tolerance towards terrorism, but they don't have a zero to tolerance towards organized crime. And I say that because people think nothing about buying drugs. I, I say not everybody, but there are too many people who think buying drugs is just okay. There are too many people who think nothing about buying counterfeit goods because they're getting a cheap bargain. Too many people think about getting their, you know, their cars washed on a Saturday morning by Romanians that have turned up on, at a disused car park somewhere. Uh, and yet all of these things are indicators of organized crime. So there isn't that zero tolerance towards organized crime as there is towards terrorism. But organized crime kills more people more often, repeatedly, and nobody seems to get too excited about it. What sort of figures are we talking about? I'd say well, on the organized crime side, because we hear the figures on the news if someone's, you know, if a terrorist has blown up. So, so, so last year uh, in Northern Ireland, we lost 190 people because of drugs. 190 people. That's probably in the top three or four years of the numbers of people who died because of terrorism over the course of the troubles. And yet, where's the public outcry? Where's the cry that we need to do more about this? We need to stop this happening. Um, I think the figures in England and Wales are even more dramatic. Scotland has had its most um, deadly year because of drugs overdoses and drugs deaths. And yet the public outcry just isn't there. So I would contend that you're more likely to be the victim of organized crime than you are of terrorism. But there is this righteous and very proper zero tolerance towards terrorism. But I think people need to be more aware of the fact that organized crime 
is first of all a supply and demand. So people who are involved in organized crime supply a service, whether it's drugs, whether it's counterfeit goods, whether it's you know young girls in brothels. That service is provided because there's a demand. Where does the demand come from? Well, it comes from people that you meet, it comes from your neighbors, your friends, your brothers, your sisters. Just going back on that, um, mm. when you said that young girls in brothels, um, yeah. Um, sex trafficking, I mean, yeah. that's become another thing that we, we hear and we hear talked about. Yeah, you know, I, I'm a woman and I, and I can't see it. I live in London, biggest city in, in England, and I don't outwardly see it. If I was to use my laptop now and using the Wi-Fi from the hotel, I could, and I please forgive the expression, I could order a woman to be brought to this hotel room within 15 minutes. And would that woman be coming of her own accord? Because that's a very different matter. There yeah. are people who, uh, and they're, for the most part, they are, they are women, who are voluntarily uh, living their lives as sex workers. There are people who do that. And that's uh, legitimate. People might have a view on that, but it's their choice, yes, their bodies, yeah. their livelihoods. Mm -hmm. And I, I accept that. But the greater number of people that are being used in brothels are being trafficked, which means that if you're a man, it's predominantly a male uh, purchaser and a female supplier, awful terms, but you'll understand what I mean. But if you're a man going into a brothel, you're part of the problem because you're the demand side of that problem. And you're going into a brothel where more often than not, there are young women there who didn't set out when they were teenagers when they were young teenagers, to say, when I grow up, I want to come to London and uh, sell myself to strangers six, seven, eight times a day for money, which, for the most part, I won't get back. Well, when you, when you were in the police, did you witness this? Were you involved in any of these investigations? Uh, I had the fortune to be the head of organised crime for Northern Ireland and my team's led investigations into this and this is rape for profit it's rape for profit young women are being uh, are being raped repeatedly on a daily basis in rented accommodation in hotel rooms in uh, in other premises on a daily basis almost in every town city and uh, and village around the countryside and and men are doing this and they're doing so either ignorant of what they're doing or they're aware of it and they just don't care. Can but I just pick remember you up on, rape for profit. Can I just pick you up on what you just said? You said they're ignorant mm. of doing this. Are they really ignorant of do, doing this? Um, I have to be cautious in that I have to try to find the, the possibility that people are ignorant of it. I think there are people who are prepared to live with whatever it is they're going to do and you know to part with the consequences because you know they've paid their money and they're going to get what's owed to them what sort I, of I, sentence would they be looking if, if they got caught would they be you looking see, that's at? The thing. so if you were if you were caught today and if if you were in if this were belfast there is a law that says it is illegal to pay for sex and you would get fined a very modest sum of money. There's a potential that you might go to prison, but, but it hasn't happened yet. Well, if you step back from that and say, well, what are we talking about here? Well, what we're talking about here is rape for profit. 
someone gets fined for paying for sex compared to actually you're involved in statutory rape. Those are, it's the same act. Rape carries life imprisonment. Nobody gets life imprisonment if what you're charged with is being, you know, a, 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 seen as a ma minor offence of simply paying for sex. And so we've got this, you know, in the United Kingdom, and, and actually globally, you've got this almost ambivalence towards some of the organised crime that I've that I've been, you know, witness to, and you know, this leads to real harm. This leads, you know, young women. Um, particularly young women are being trafficked around the United Kingdom. How are they being trafficked? Can you, can you talk me through any sort well, of scenarios about so, how they're even being transported? Or You know, the, the idea that they're being moved in the dead of night surreptitiously in, you know, underground railway systems and mysterious... It's just wrong. They're, they're simply put into a car and driven around the place. There is an expression which is, is, is really distasteful, but it talks about the chicken run. And so the chicken run is uh, if, if you're a customer, to use the analogy, if you're a customer and, and you like to regularly buy and pay for sex, more often than not, the feedback is you like to have choice. So you don't like to see the same girl every couple of days, every week, every month. And so the girls are rotated from one town to the next. And so they're moved around the place in what's referred to as the chicken run. And so you pop up from London today, you're in Manchester tomorrow, you're in Nottingham the day after, and you're, you know, in Bristol the week after that. And, and, and you might be advertised under a different name, or you may keep your name, uh, or you might be known as X when you come to London, and Y when you go to Manchester, and Z when you go to Bristol. And when you come back to London, you're back being X because you've got this reputation and there's almost this allure of, well, X, X isn't in London this week, but I look forward to when X is back in London in three weeks' time. On a daily basis, they're often, often having to have sex with complete strangers five, six, seven, eight times per day, for which they get negligible amounts of the money that is paid, because that goes to the, the controllers. And it happens on a daily basis, and they're moved around now. Why is this such a, a profitable industry? And stick with me for the, the analogy. Yeah. If we weighed you as a woman in kilos of cocaine, once you're sold and you're cut up and you're sniffed or snorted, so, yeah. you're gone. Right? Your value has gone. You as a human being can be used time and time again. And so you go from being a, um, if the equivalent's a really bad analogy, but if you are, you know, X kilos of cocaine, once that's gone, that's it. But you as a human being can be rotated around different brothels time and time again, and used time and time again on a daily basis, and no more than a battery hen would be used. Are you saying, Roy, that the the human trafficking or the sex trafficking is going to be is bigger than the drug? No, I don't think it's bigger. Um, I, I I still think it's a smaller market, but it is a significant market. So when I was in uh, in PSNI, the Peace Service of Northern Ireland, and we were linked into the what's known as a national referral mechanism, which is the national system for measuring and identifying victims of human trafficking. 
the national figure for victims of trafficking was around 2,000 people. That's a huge number. 2,000 people, that's across the whole of the United Kingdom. Um, last year, that figure was just under 11,000 people. So now, that's gone up in, in less than a decade. That has gone up five times. The estimates from, from different social studies that have been undertaken puts the figure as conservatively 100,000 people. In England, in, in, in the, the UK, Kingdom. in the UK. 100,000 people are estimated based on studies that were undertaken this time last year that the figure of people that are being trafficked around the United Kingdom could be 100,000 people. So Roy, I've got two questions listening to that. Um, the first one would be, why is there a demand? Um, what, why is there being such an increase? Um, I'm not sure that I can answer the why is there the demand because it's the psychology and the sociology of humankind, which I'm not qualified to talk about. But I think casually people often talk about prostitution being one of the oldest the occupations in, in sort of humankind. Whether that's true or false, I think there has always been um, a demand for men particularly and who are willing to pay for sex. Um, why is there the increase? Well, I think the internet and the availability of um, communication systems makes it so much easier. Uh, you know, you can sit in a hotel room and historically, you know, you would have had to have walked the streets or looked up the back of a newspaper, found an advertisement, made a phone call, which left a trail on a, you know, on a hotel phone bill. Uh, and you would have had to do all of that. Now you click on an app. Organized crime is faster at adapting and adopting new technology. And it finds a way to make its business model adapt quicker to the technology than the rest of us. What do I mean by that? Um, no sooner was Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram being used by the people who were taking photographs of their, you know, their dinner, their lunch and their cars and their new whatever, then organized crime was using it as a means to get their profits increased. So they were selling their products online through those systems faster than anybody else. They are incredibly good at being early adopters of technology. And so as, as we, the rest of mankind or humankind, develop and get to know the the use of mobile phones and the internet and all of the things that go with it, wrapped around that are organized criminals who are adapting quicker and they're selling their criminal profits through those systems faster than the rest of us are. So I guess there's things there that we could say, how are we using technology in the police force to do something about it? Is technology working so, in our fa so favor the, as well? I think the challenge for policing is recognizing that there's always going to be a gap between the speed at which criminals use the technology and the speed at which law enforcement uses it to, to catch them. And there's a reason for that. Number one principally is police, Policing and law enforcement has to be within the law. So they need a legal framework to do all the things to catch criminals using technology. So to a large extent, the dark web is supposed to be unstructured. So it's like, it's like going through a library with your eyes closed. Yes, you will find a book, but you don't quite know what book until you, you know, get it out into the light. That's a poor analogy. But whereas the open web, people talk about, you know, the open web is that top of the iceberg that's above the water. 
You can see it, you can feel it, you can touch it. The dark web is the bit beneath the water, which is unstructured and harder to navigate. And it is more difficult to navigate and to find, um, you know, find your way around the dark web, but, you know, it can be done. Can be done. Roy, in your 35 years, you must have seen some pretty horrific stuff. I mean, we've just talked about human trafficking. Mm. I know you've dealt with um, uh, child sex abuse as well. Mm. Is there anything that you can talk about um, to bring that to light a little bit more? I'm sadly old enough to remember the days when, uh, you know, my parents used to say to me, you can play it on the streets with your brothers and your friends, but the moment that the street lights go on, we want you to come home. And and the idea behind that was, well, you know, when the lights go on, it means it's getting darker, and of course that's when it becomes dangerous. Is was the implication, and all that made perfect sense to a degree. But actually, what's happening now is that the internet is in just about every device. So kids growing up now, and you've all seen it, you've walked around Sainsbury's and, you know, Tesco's, and you've seen kids that are pre-primary school, and they're sitting with their tablets and their, their mom's iPhone, and they're playing games to distract them from, you know, having a, a hissy fit west in the shop. And that makes perfect sense to a degree. Except kids nowadays have access to internet-enabled devices that have not been preset for adults only, yeah. right? Yeah. Which means that they're using devices that anybody could access. Predators know this and they're targeting people who, when kids are coming in from playing out on the street, they're going to their rooms and they're going to their rooms with their internet devices, whether it's their mobile phones or their tablets or their computers or their gaming consoles. And mom and dad think that they are safe because they're upstairs in their room. Mm -hmm. In reality, they're upstairs in their room with internet-enabled devices, and the person on those devices could be the next sexual predator. And that's oftentimes the more dangerous place now is for kids being inside with those devices, unmonitored, unsupervised, and without awareness of what could go on on those devices. The speed at which predators can find vulnerable young boys and girls, lure them in, and you know, just begin to groom them. It's just frightening. What are the it's signs? Is are the signs that people should look out for? Well, if if my if my children were young enough now, and and I was having to to bring them up in a world that we are now living in, I would go out of my way to make sure that all the devices were were blocked and the adult controls were put in place. You know, I would start educating them about what to do and what not to do. If they're developing friendships with people that aren't known to the family, if they're talking about matters that they ought not to be talking about, if their mood changes, if their attitude changes, if they're suddenly being a little bit more secretive, there are a number of indicators that mom and dad or, or guardian should look at and go, that's just not right. That's that's dangerous. But I mean, to give you a sense of how, just how wicked the world has become, and, and perhaps it was always like this, but when I was in the National Crime Agency and, and had the national lead for child sexual abuse investigations, you know, there were lots of examples of people being groomed and being, and being sexually abused. But, you know, the, the agency successfully prosecuted somebody who was a predator, 
was uh, was a paedophile. Um, he was on one of these chat rooms with other like-minded offenders. But there's like a badge of honour where people couldn't get into these chat rooms unless they could show to their fellow paedophiles that they weren't law enforcement. So it was almost like a proof that they weren't law enforcement. So they had to show um, a new image that nobody else had. So this particular person, um, being trusted member of the family, was babysitting his, nep his nephew and niece and sexually abused the nephew and niece who were very young children and put images of those children online only for the purpose of accessing a wider um, group of other offenders so that he could see other imagery. And that's a trusted member of a family doing that for the purpose of getting access to other imagery that's around the world. How do you, presumably you see all these images, how do you even get that out of your mind? I think the challenge for people is not only living with what they see, and there are different ways that the organisations who do this try to protect the staff who are looking at these images. Um, but I think what probably haunts people are the ones which get away. It's the images of the children who you cannot identify. Mm. You know, let's call this what it is. Yeah. This is children being ripped. Yeah. This is babies being awful. ripped. This is, you know, this is, this is the most vulnerable of our society it's being exposed to the most violent and dangerous of these offenders who almost nonchalantly commit the most brutal offending Continuously, you know, and, and these children that have been through this, uh, and I don't have the psychological or the physiological training to go much beyond what I think happens is, I don't think they're ever the same again. I don't think they ever recover. And, and you know, I've had many conversations with people who in their older lives have been victims of, of sexual abuse and they carry the trauma of that for a of long course. time. Well, how much more so a baby or a young child? You know, the level of brutality, the level of violence. Uh, and and so when you're in one of these professions where you have the opportunity to find and to rescue those children, when you're in one of these professions where you have the opportunity to arrest and prosecute these offenders, it's not hard to get up for work that morning. What would you say to the general public? In our own way, how can we help? Well, let's start with, with protecting children. Let's let's make sure that we we recognise it as as a, you know as as a developed country we have a continuous personal duty to do all we can to protect children. We start by I think recognising that it is possible that a child could be abused in our own family uh, because a lot of of contact abuse happens within families and within familial circumstance. So making sure that we are cognizant of the possibility of that in the first instance, recognizing that um, as much as we might like, you know, dear old Uncle Jimmy, it's possible that this person could be involved yeah. and be be aware of what the signs might be that 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 grooming that could be going on, that sexual offending could start with a, you know, a, an apparently innocent or modest level of contact, but could be building up to to grooming that could lead to the most violent of sexual offending. So, Roy, you've been making a difference for 35 years. 
What's the next step now? How are you planning to still make a difference? Um, I would love to do it all over again, but father time is against me. I'm older now than I than I wish I was, but um, I get up every day with the the positive attitude of I may not be a police officer anymore. I may not be a senior detective. I may not be uh, a deputy director in the National Crime Agency, but I have the privilege of being a consultant working in international organizations. And so I think the learning that I've had in, in the United Kingdom and working with you know such fine officers in, in policing uh, across the United Kingdom and in the National Crime Agency, the learning can be now delivered to international audiences. And so I'm working with uh, organizations that are that are trying to build up their capability and their capacity. I'm trying to spread what I may have learned over my years and put it into a uh, in, into other countries that have those problems still. Um, I mean, every day there are sadly still children being abused. There are still women being trafficked. There's still men being trafficked. There's still people being lured into, into terrorism. There's still people who are voluntarily wanting to be involved in, in drugs and drugs trafficking. There's still people who want to be involved in, in the laundering of criminal profits. There's still any amount of criminal activity there. Uh, and so I get up every morning with, you know, how can I make a difference? How can I, you know, stop one person getting involved in this type of criminal activity? And, you know, one person being distracted from criminal activity is one person saved almost. I think that really leads nicely on to my last question, um, which is if you were to write a message in a bottle for future generations to find, what would the message be? Oh, goodness. I've never thought about it that way before. Um, so I'm going to paraphrase um, uh, an, an Irish man from the last century, year and a hundred plus years ago, who said that the only thing that evil needs to succeed is for good men to do nothing. And if the message is as simple as do something, then that's what the message is, do something. Because there's so much criminality there's so much, there's so many people willing to harm other members of this human race that it needs each of us to do something. Because if we all do nothing, then evil wins. Roy, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. It's my been pleasure. really fascinating. Thank, thank you. you. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like, and you'll get it straight into your inbox.